Welcome to MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence and Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Director of Technology and Resources for NMVVRC, and with me today, Bruce Shapiro, the Executive Director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, a project of the Columbia Journalism School. Welcome, Bruce. Glad to be here. Excellent. Thank you for joining us today. Um, so I guess my first question I have for you is the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. The DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, a project of Columbia <laughs> Journalism School. Um, Thank you. I left that off. Yeah, uh, was established uh, 20 years ago with the goal of improving reporting on violence and conflict and tragedy. Um, you know, a huge percentage of what we consider the news involves the worst things that happen to people, whether it is street crime or family violence, war, disaster, international human rights. All of these are huge stories that are at the center of the news and should be, and yet reporters traditionally uh, receive very little preparation for covering Mm -hmm. survivors of trauma, for thinking about how the folks we interview or the communities we're reporting on or news consumers themselves may be affected in the aftermath of of violence, conflict, and tragedy. So on the one hand, we do a lot of uh, training of reporters, trying to bridge uh, the expertise of clinicians and researchers in the trauma field with journalism practice. And on the other hand, we also think a lot about the impact of covering trauma on journalists okay. um, and what are some best practices for news professionals to kind of stay resilient and do the job well. Both of them are central. So we're kind of a combination of an innovation center, a think tank, a resource center that brings together journalists from around the world, clinicians, advocates and other stakeholders in this important conversation. Okay. You mentioned training. So if I'm a beat reporter here at the the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina, and I say to myself, you know what, I think I want to get some training in this area. Is there are there programs, classes, courses? Um, wh- what kind of things would I do? So first of all, on the Dart Center's website, mm-hmm. www.dartcenter.org, <laughs> um, there is a huge library of uh, resources, of tip sheets, and actual kind of covering trauma curriculum, backgrounders, reporter to reporter conversations on lessons learned from covering stories about trauma, uh, really 20 years now of accumulated wisdom. Uh, In addition to that, we uh, run an annual fellowship program that brings a dozen journalists from around the world, uh, ranging from local reporters to um, international reporters, together to talk about the challenges of covering trauma. And we also run a lot of workshops around the country, um, sometimes on covering trauma in general, sometimes on specific topics like covering mass shootings or covering refugees and, and migration. Uh, We also recognize excellent work with the annual DART Award, which actually the Post and Courier here has won for uh, an extraordinary series about the victims of gun violence uh, here in Charleston uh, a few years back. Excellent. Uh, So it's not only about training. It's also about rewarding the the greatest and most innovative reporting on these difficult topics Mm -hmm. and then trying to draw out from those reporters the lessons learned so that other journalists 
can build it into their repertoire. Benefit from experience. Yeah. So um, what are the sort of standards for um, training and experience that a, a journalist should have uh, before they cover mass violence? Is there like you have to be this experienced before you get assigned a mass violence case or something like well, that? Well, if only that were true. Okay. The reality of mass violence, of course, is that it occurs in all kinds of communities at all kinds of times, and that means that on any given day, reporters at a local TV station or a local public radio station or a local blog or a local daily newsroom um, are going to be deployed, whether they've been on the job for 20 years or are in the first five minutes of an internship. A, a young friend of mine was an intern at the Miami Herald um, last year, and in her first week on the job, she was sent out to Parkland High School as that wow. story was breaking. Uh, and this is not that unusual. Um, so, you know, we would like to think that there's some kind of coherent training experience that you should, a merit badge you should have to have mm -hmm. before covering such a difficult story. But the reality is that young reporters, often from the very first days that they're on the job, are covering extraordinarily difficult experiences, mm -hmm. even if it's not a mass shooting. It may be car wrecks. It may be house fires, or house or fires ordinary murder. Um, you know, often it's the youngest reporters who are sent out to do that. And, is you that know, right? wow. yeah. And, you know, um, I mean, in my case, the very first story, I news story I ever covered involved the death of a young woman about my own age from carbon monoxide poisoning in the neighborhood in which I was going to school. Um, and nobody said, here's how you interview her family, here's how you talk to her neighbors, mm -hmm. here's how a story like this affects the people in the middle of it or maybe even would affect you. It wasn't a conversation mm -hmm. back in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you wouldn't send a young reporter out to cover a football game who doesn't mm -hmm. know what a touchdown is. And yet, make we, for some interesting reporting. Perhaps. It would make for yeah. yeah well, it's a thought, but yeah. and yet we routinely send reporters out to talk to people who have been through severe trauma, mm -hmm. without giving them language and vocabulary, without without them having a background in interview techniques. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of what we do at the Dart Center is try to first of all work with journalism teachers and mm -hmm. journalism schools to get the idea of trauma embedded in the news curriculum, mm -hmm. thinking about what something like PTSD looks like, what to expect when you're interviewing people who've been through traumatic experience, whether it's five minutes ago or 20 years ago. Right. Um, thinking about what that means for our ethics, um, how we interview, whom we interview, under what, how do we make it safe, mm -hmm. how do we make it productive, not a reopening of old wounds. Um, and how do you tell stories that mm -hmm. for which there may not be words? Um, you know, mass violence, mass shootings. These are words. These are events that go beyond the ability of speech to mm -hmm. describe, or beyond the ability of image to convey. Mm -hmm. And yet, our job as reporters is to find the words and mm -hmm. to find the images. So, start to work with you know journalism teachers. But most of our work actually is reporter to reporter. Okay is encouraging innovation um, and trying to draw out the lessons learned from coverage and translate that then into tip sheets, into training programs that working journalists can continue to benefit from throughout their careers.
Cool. Uh, you're listening to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. And we're talking today with Bruce Shapiro, the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, a project, I won't leave it out this time, of Columbia Journalism School. Um, you know, you, you just one follow-up thought. You, sure. you, you were saying what should reporters have in their toolkit. And so, you know, I think there are a few baseline things. First of all, there be, should be some baseline understanding of what psychological injury is, okay. just as we would expect a political reporter to know how a bill becomes law. A reporter ought to know that there is this thing called PTSD and mm-hmm. other sequelae of, of trauma, mm-hmm. and here's what it looks like. We ought to have a tool belt that has a few interview techniques appropriate for uh, people who've been through difficult experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we ought to also have a few self-care techniques. Okay. We ought to have some ways of dealing with uh, to understanding that these stories may affect us, may affect our, our news judgment or challenge our own mm-hmm. capacities. And we ought to have the ability to talk with colleagues about it. We ought to have some language uh, within the news profession that legitimizes it. I think with those few things, reporters can actually do a lot. That's that's really interesting. I, I think one of the next questions I was going to ask you was um, to sort of build on this notion that um, there's a lot of attention that more recently, I think, than there has been in the past about first responders. And typically mm-hmm. when people think about first responders, they think about EMTs, firemen, police officers and the like who respond in the immediate aftermath of a, of a large-scale, let's just say, mass mm-hmm. violence event. Um, but it it's sort of dawning on me listening to you talk about this that um, maybe reporters should be considered first responders. Is that is that sort of a an identity that makes sense? Or? Oh, I, I it, it certainly is. I mean, when, okay. it, when it comes to large-scale tragedy, reporters are among the first on the scene, mm-hmm. and they have an important job. You know, people sometimes think about reporters as kind of vultures swooping right. in when the other first responders are doing their job. And it, that can be true sometimes, mm-hmm. but um, more often... Reporters have this crucial job. Reporters inform the rest of us about what is happening and the scope of it in the immediate sense. They lay down a baseline of knowledge that helps uh, government and society decide how to respond in the medium run. And in the long run, uh, the presence of journalists as independent uh, reporters, independent um, witnesses to these uh, to these events means that we're in a position to hold accountable the other branches of government that are involved in response, involved in recovery. Without reporters, there's no independent uh, check mm-hmm. on how other agencies are responding. Without mm-hmm. reporters, there's no... Um, It's very difficult for the public to understand the scope of an event, not only as it's happening, but in the months or years Mm -hmm. afterwards. So it is a crucial first responder role. And reporters are as vulnerable as any other human beings Mm -hmm. to um, 
being stretched past their capacity yeah. by threat or violence. I mean, just sort of thinking about that, one of the things that, I mean, our our center has a, a couple affiliations with firefighters in particular and, and, and some other law enforcement agencies. And one of the things that members of those groups talk about is the things that they see, the feeling of, of frustration and helplessness about not being able to do more, not being able to help people more than they're able to. Is that, are, are those experiences common among reporters? I mean, I think the stereotype is that a reporter is, you know, uh, Lois Lane just there with her steno pad uh, objectively reporting as if somehow what she or he is witnessing bounces right off them. Right. So I think there's a couple layers to that. There's mm-hmm. a really important question. First of all, reporters are very attuned to helping when they can Mm -hmm. uh, and are also aware of the boundaries to that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I can think of times when, for example, after Hurricane Katrina, um, journalists went back into the city at the height of the storm when most of their newspaper staff was being evacuated Mm -hmm. out uh, out of New Orleans because the newsroom itself was flooding. And they went back and ended up going around the city on kayak and motorboat mm-hmm. and help rescue people off of roofs even while they were reporting. Um, you know, on 9-11 uh, in New York City, among the reporters who rushed downtown, who rushed toward the falling towers as everybody else was running away, were fashion writers. It was the week of, it was fashion week and mm-hmm. every fashion reporter in the country was in town and they were the first responders to that scene and were very involved not only in documenting what was happening but in pulling people out of rubble and doing what they could to help. Reporters will help when they can mm-hmm. but like police, like firefighters, they are also aware that they have a job to do. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, research suggests that for first responders in general and mm-hmm. for journalists in particular, doing that job well is protective. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, you know behaving ethically, telling the best story you can, finding out as much as you can, filing it as professionally as you can, even under extreme conditions, um, is protective and it's an important skill it's what enables us to rely on the best reporters to give us trustworthy accounts of the world we live in protective in the sense that it it provides sort of a buffer uh, against the stress on on mental health physical health a buffer against the stress against the horror against Mm -hmm. the sort of huge violation of the social contract that a mass shooting for example represents it's also really important to know that in mass violence events in particular Mm -hmm. Reporters, and in particular local reporters, are often much more directly uh, affected by these events than people sometimes realize. If you take any of the great mass shootings, horrific mass shootings of the last decade, from mm-hmm. Columbine up to Parkland or, mm-hmm. or since, um, in every single case, there were reporters who were covering these events even while connected to it mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Virginia Tech, there were reporters at the Roanoke Times who had had uh, spouses who worked at that university, and they're covering this unfolding mass shooting even while having not been able to reach their spouses, mm-hmm. not sure what was going on. In uh, Newtown, in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, 
among the reporters who, among the teachers who died in that mass shooting was the daughter of two Connecticut journalists. Mm -hmm. So you had reporters over the course of the next week covering victim funerals at the same time that they were going to the funeral of the child of two of their colleagues. Mm -hmm. And this is true in pretty much every case. Reporters are doing their job despite mm -hmm. their own worries and connections for their own family, colleagues, and friends. Okay. So that, I mean, that's that's fascinating. That's, that's really impressive and I think does kind of flesh out you know the the full image of of what a reporter actually has to do, what the job is, and it's not divorced from life. Um, but as you talk to other kinds of first responders, uh, one of the things that you will frequently hear them talk about is how alone they can feel with some of the mental health consequences or or symptoms that they might be experiencing post exposure to blood, bodies, and, and so forth, um, and how it's helpful for them to have someone to talk to, have someone to talk to who understands. And I'm just curious, within the culture of journalism, within the cult culture of reporting, how are those kinds of issues treated? So historically, there was a tremendous amount of stigma. Okay. The presumption was, uh, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, right. suck it up. Or, in more idealistic terms, we're here to tell other people's stories. They're suffering much more than we are. Um, that's really where our energy needs to be going. Mm -hmm. um, there was a feeling that you that reporters would not uh, get the next story or the next assignment uh, or the next promotion if they uh, were shown to be vulnerable mm -hmm. in any way. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with this is that it sort of flies in the face of human reality. Right. Um, all the studies that have been done of journalists suggest that we are, like other first responders, on the one hand resilient as a tribe, uh, but on the other hand do have some vulnerabilities, particularly if we cover a lot of these events mm -hmm. or if uh, we cover um, events that we're close to in our own communities or that we identify with, a bunch of things that can make reporters more vulnerable. And the particular sequelae of, of post-traumatic stress disorder and other psychological injuries go to, they attack the very mechanisms that make people good journalists. The ability to empathize, the ability to concentrate, mm -hmm. the ability to deal with memory, to tell stories, to have trusting relationships with sources and colleagues. All of these can be undermined um, by by unrecognized or unratified PTSD. So in the course of the last decade, that culture has begun to shift. And actually, okay. we've learned a lot as a profession from uh, police and fire okay. and other emergency responders. As bad as the culture may be there, they are mm -hmm. actually years ahead of journalism. Isn't that interesting? And um, we've, uh, certainly at the DART Center, we have borrowed and adapted a lot of peer support techniques, for example, from uh, firefighters mm -hmm. uh, whose work is very close to ours, mm -hmm. uh, or from the military or from others. Um, there's, you know, beginning, I would say, around the time of 9-11, before it actually, and then increasingly since, you, you began to see a few things. First of all, a few older reporters, people like Bernard Shaw of CNN, mm -hmm. an old, old CNN uh, anchor who covered the Iraq War, was mm -hmm. kind of a famous hand. He 
uh, people like Christian Amanpour now right. at CNN have mm-hmm. come out and talked very openly about their own uh, emotional responses mm-hmm. and their own struggles and the ways in which they've gotten help. That That's has got to help make it okay. That yeah. validates it yeah. for younger reporters. And at the same time, you have, I think, a new generation of younger reporters who, uh, in, as in the culture as a whole, mm-hmm. have much more awareness of things like PTSD mm-hmm. and much more of a willingness to talk about it. Mm-hmm. In fact, now I sometimes find that my role has reversed, whereas some years ago I would go into a newsroom and be trying to educate colleagues of ways in which they might be vulnerable. I now find myself often reassuring young reporters and saying, you know, just because you see your first body doesn't mean you're going to be crippled by PTSD for the rest of your life. There's no evidence to support this Mm -hmm. and so on. Um, You know, we've learned a lot about what makes journalists effective and resilient. And a number of news organizations now have undertaken comprehensive trauma awareness and peer support programs Mm -hmm. all over the world. The Australian Broadcasting Corporation now has a peer support program where there are two or more journalists in every single office and bureau that the ABC has around the world who are trained as peer supporters for their colleagues. Uh, The BBC has something similar. NPR, Reuters, all of them are doing different versions of this. Other news organizations are playing catch up, but there is a there is a big desire in the profession now to do something about this. We all do know too many colleagues who are not able to do their work because of psychological injuries mm-hmm. they sustained in the course of reporting. The mm-hmm. cost of reporting can be very high. Um, it's not. It's not that reporters are hopeless adrenaline addicts. To the contrary, actually, mm-hmm. most are simply people with a deep sense of mission who are very good at their job, including Mm -hmm. most reporters who cover war, Mm -hmm. but they are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so now um, you're seeing a move in journalism to create a more resilience-based culture in newsrooms. Uh, We're talking with Bruce Shapiro, the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, and we're talking basically all things uh, mass violence and journalism. Um, One of the other things I wanted to, to ask you about, I've got sort of two big uh, remaining topics for you. And the, the first is basically about best practices. So as you mentioned, sometimes folks with very little background and training in responding to um, victims of violence and, and violence in general get tasked with reporting on these events. Um, what should those best practices for journalists like that be? How should they approach their work in order to be the most effective and sensitive journalists they can? Well, the first step is to educate yourself ahead of time so that when that mass shooting or that highway collapse or that earthquake hits, you know what your options are and you know what your choices mm-hmm. are rather than trying to kind of handle it on the fly because mm-hmm. by then it's you know when you're rushing out to that high school or rushing out to that collapsed highway bridge that's not the time when you want to be googling interviewing victims of violence right <laughs> probably not yes. it's right it's you want that under <laughs> your so so in all seriousness um doing a little bit of homework ahead of time turning to the DART Center's website, Mm -hmm. (laughs) www.dartcenter.org, for instance, which has a huge library of backgrounders and tip sheets on things like interviewing survivors. And developing some best practices of your own is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So a few things. You should be a little bit literate in how people who have been traumatized may be responding. So that during the breaking news phase of a story, if you meet someone, you can assess whether they're able to give consent to being interviewed. Mm -hmm. Are they cognizant of who you are, of where they are, of what's just happened? Can you ethically engage them Mm -hmm. to be interviewed? Or is this someone who just needs help? You know, are you... So you can see that would be easy to sort of dance the line of exploitation there. And, well, and, that's right. Yeah. Uh, that's right. And it, it's, it's always a challenge. But again, if you educate yourself a little mm-hmm. bit ahead of time, you're going to make much better choices. Um, similarly, you should um, have some knowledge of how first responders are likely to be deploying in this situation so that you can gather facts and do reporting in a way that's not going to interfere with them. You should be very aware, as stories are breaking, of the importance of confirming facts before rushing them out. Mm-hmm. And here, one wants to work, have a kind of good line of communication between reporters on the scene and their editors or producers. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that journalism has changed is we're now, as in general, much more careful about things like you know, quickly tweeting out the names of suspects of interest, persons of interest, or right. or who's alive and who's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, all those kinds of things. There have been some very big mistakes that mm-hmm. news organizations have made, and we now know to be a little more careful. Similarly, having a degree of skepticism about the flood of information you get mm-hmm. in the first hours mm-hmm. turns out to be important. Um, after Columbine, for mm-hmm. example, the Columbine shooting uh, 20 years ago, it turned out that much of what we heard in the first 48 hours that became most of our templates for understanding mm-hmm. this horrific school shooting was wrong. Mm-hmm. It, it was stuff that didn't exist, and yet we still remember it that I way. I still, my application to join the trench coat mafia was never responded right. to. Right. Yeah. That, well, there yeah. you go. Uh-huh. And then that really was, you know, we made the mistake of, of taking as gospel, the idea that these two shooters were the members of a kind of alienated goth Mm -hmm. network. Mm -hmm. Whatever else was going on, that did not exist. That Mm -hmm. was not the story. Um, So, you know, in the first hours after a shooting, what's our job? Mm -hmm. I think best practices include defining what it is we hope to accomplish in those first few hours, and also doing things like being very cautious about interviewing young children, being... uh, conservative about what images Mm -hmm. we're going to use and the safety of folks who we're encountering. I think those are important things. Then you get into the longer aftermath. And there, best practices include a whole variety of interview techniques that are designed to help survivors feel like they have a sense of control, Mm -hmm. that they're collaborators Mm -hmm. rather than being manipulated into participating. Um, that build trust with people who may feel either a profound sense of violation of the social contract and ability, loss of their ability to trust anyone, or folks who may be rushing at you as reporters mm-hmm. because they want they desperately want to trust someone. They want to be first. They want to be first, or or in, I guess in, it's, in, we're talking long term. Long term, or sometimes, or, yeah. or sometimes simply they want to be vindicated. Mm-hmm. They want someone to listen, and. You want to make sure that you're transparent mm. about your methodology, about your purposes, how material will be used, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's going to depend exactly how those play out, depends on the story. But you want to have 
an overall methodology that reflects um, values of compassion and that reflects um, values of respect for survivor experiences. Mm -hmm. You want to think about also the news agenda. Too often in the aftermath of mass violence events, reporting gets sort of captured by the criminal justice process. Right. And we end up reporting on perpetrators, we end up reporting on their trials, and all that's important and good. But what about individuals, families and communities and survivors? So that's exactly the, the second issue I wanted to, to ask you about. And it sort of gets at sort of a au courant uh, sort of controversy. And we're talking with Bruce Shapiro, the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, a project of the Columbia Journalism School um, here on the MVP uh, Mass Violence podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. And what I wanted to follow up on is is this, uh, I, I guess it's a fairly recent controversy um, that's come up about the ethics or more maybe more accurately the propriety of identifying perpetrators yes. and sharing information about the perpetrator, giving tons and tons of information about the background and, you know, whether the person liked chicken nuggets or strawberry milk um, versus providing more information to humanize the people that were killed yep. uh, in, a, in yeah. a situation. Well, and, and, and this is a really important conversation that's, that is very alive right now. Mm -hmm. um, and we're in the middle of a period of change around it. Um, you know, the tradition in reporting is that you would always name the perpetrator, mm -hmm. um, and people want to know. People want to know who sure. did this. It, it is news, and yeah. uh, and and you know. But um, after the, I mean, there have been tensions around it for a long time, mm -hmm. right? Particularly around the centrality of perpetrators to these stories, and it periodically it would come up. For example, in Australia, uh, you had this famous mass shooting, the Port Arthur Massacre. Mm -hmm. and on the 10th anniversary of that, some years ago, there was a whole confrontation between victim groups and some of the news media in Australia, um, with the families demanding that the perpetrator's name not be mentioned in any of the anniversary coverage. And they had to have a negotiation mm -hmm. about it and ended up, I think, with some limited coverage. More recently here in the U.S., after the school, the theater shooting, movie theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado, family members of victims of that shooting um, asked journalists to sign a no-notoriety pledge, arguing that um, most mass shooters are seeking attention and publicity, that... Uh, news coverage which names and reports on those individuals is only rewarding that, and this is both wrong and a mm -hmm. disservice to victims and survivors. Uh, it sparked a very deep and significant conversation um, between those families and local journalists in Colorado mm -hmm. uh, and nationally among reporters, and it has sparked some change. Mm -hmm. um, I think most news organizations and most journalists would say that on the one hand, we do have a responsibility um, to name individual perpetrators when they're arrested, and we mm -hmm. have a responsibility to report on the, their particulars because, after all, society needs to know something about who does these things if we're going to address them and prevent them. But on the other hand, we're now asking ourselves 
do I need to use the name here in mm-hmm. this story, in this lead, in this headline? And the answer many of us are coming back with in the course of coverage now is, you know, we don't need to use it so mm-hmm. often. We can use it a lot less. Um, you know, Anderson Cooper on CNN has taken an enormous uh, risk and lead in this, and he he now he doesn't. He generally just says the shooter mm-hmm. or the perpetrator. He hardly ever uses mm-hmm. someone's name, and many news organizations are really cutting down. Mm-hmm. Not only on the references to the particular name, but on the centrality of the perpetrator as as the source of news. Mm-hmm. And that gets to the second question you asked, which is in some ways the more important one, uh, the more sweeping one anyway, which is when we're covering the aftermath of mass atrocity, whose stories mm-hmm. get told. Right. Traditional reporting that covers a criminal justice process, which is responsible for adjudicating mm-hmm. the guilt or innocence of an individual perpetrator, mm-hmm. um, runs the risk of treating survivors and witnesses as exhibits. Right. Which is, I mean, and from the legal perspective, the legal perspective is what they're, they are. They're witnesses. They're, right. you're, it's not about you. Right. You tell your story and then you go away. Right. Yeah. My, my own view, though, is that we can, in fact, do a survivor-centered reporting Mm -hmm. in which the long arc of survivor experience, the long arc of recovery, the long arc of interaction with the criminal justice process, the long arc of grief are as much a part of the news agenda as the original event itself. Mm -hmm. I think this is particularly important since the sort of political question of how society responds to crime and violence and responds to the needs of survivors and victims mm-hmm. and witnesses is is really where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. That is the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're not centering our coverage on the diverse victim experiences, we're not going to have a healthy public debate mm-hmm. about these issues. So I think there's from a traditional kind of news agenda point of view, as well as from a compassion and trauma awareness point of view, there are a lot of good reasons to come up with a model for coverage that is based much more on tracking Mm -hmm. uh, the lives, experiences, and needs of survivors. And I think we've seen that. You Mm -hmm. know, the, the DART Award every year goes to uh, and has for 24 years gone to news organizations that do an excellent job of covering stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And telling and, victim stories. And yeah. telling survivor stories mm-hmm. and telling community mm-hmm. stories and individual stories. Um, and there's been a lot of innovation in that. The techniques of data reporting, investigative reporting, other kinds of uh, oral history, other kinds of interviewing have all been brought to bear multimedia journalism mm-hmm. in which we're getting videos of, of survivors mm-hmm. um, and people in the criminal justice system and others that are essentially first-person mm-hmm. testimonies about about the state of affairs mm-hmm. in a world filled with gun violence and, and injustice and other things. These are all changing the public debate. Mm-hmm. So I think it's actually a rich terrain of innovation mm-hmm. for my journalist brethren mm-hmm. and is one one that I think, well, I'm very proud that we're doing a little bit to move along. 
Excellent. Um, I, I think that's a, a, about all the time we have, Bruce. I really wanted to thank you for your insight and expertise and uh, helping understand the role of journalism in sort of responding to mass violence attacks. I've been talking with Bruce Shapiro, the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, a project of the Columbia Journalism School. And uh, thank you. Um, this is Dan Smith, the director of technology and resources for the NMVVRC. And we'll be back soon to talk with you uh, and a, another interesting guest. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.